Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us this kind of love, uh, love that defines our lives, it defines our um, walk on earth, and it defines our future, all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless this time now and that you would be with uh, the Children's Church also. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do have a kind of riddle here that I need to share, and this is really for um, Kimon and Scott. I told the girls that I told them something in Sunday school that you guys probably didn't even know. So I think they're excited. So find out what it is. And I'm interested to know if you know it, but I can't tell you what it is. Anyway, um, it has to do with the story in Judges. Context is everything in terms of how we understand things, how the facts add up and and what they mean. A very uh, plain situation can take on amazing dimensions just from understanding what really is happening. There's a story that's told, and I'm sure it's fictitious, about a uh, group of soldiers, elite troops in Indonesia, that were trained after the Second World War, and the U.S. had a need for them in the Korean War. Now, these were the kind of guys that would make ninjas cry. And there were 25 of them, only 25 of them, and this American general needed them to go into North Korea and take something out. And so he's explaining what was the situation. These men are all lined up. And he says, so here's what's what we need. We are going to drive this plane in fast and low. You need to jump out, group together, go up the river, and that's where this ammunition depot is. You need to take it out. It belongs to the Chinese. So go up there, take it out, follow the river to the ocean, and hopefully we will have a ship waiting there for you to take you to safety. And so he explains this. It's given through the interpreter. And the moment of truth comes, and they ask the men who are for this mission to stand, uh, to come forward, and only 13 of them come forward. And the general is almost beside himself. He, He goes to their general, and he says, I understood that these men were just tough as nails, and they were ready for anything. He said, we will fail if we only have 13 of them. We need all 25. And so this general talks to the captain. The captain, and they put their heads together for a little bit, and then the captain says something in this language to the men, and wouldn't you know it, the other 12 step forward. And uh, that's perfect. So the American general, he talks to the other general, he says, well, what did he tell them to make the other 12 step forward? He said, he told them they can use parachutes when they jump from the plane. It might be fictitious. But it sure does change the story, doesn't it? I mean, think about those 13 guys that were willing to jump out of the plane. So the thing is, when we're studying the Bible, I think it's really good to kind of keep things in mind. Because I don't know about you, but I am very apt to taking things for granted. Uh, Particularly in a book like 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, like, What are they doing there? Maybe some kind of filler that God wants there. I have been fascinated in stuff that I've done in the Old Testament 
where you come upon a book like Nahum, the prophet, who has a violent little book. Just a violent little book. And you think to yourself, if I understand that right, that that might have been what moved the king of Assyria to release the newly born again King Manasseh out of a prison in Babylon. Hmm. Context makes a big difference. Or you take a book like Zephaniah. Zephaniah. What's in Zephaniah? I don't know. Well, that's written to Josiah, actually. Josiah's a good king. And you realize that everything Zephaniah is saying in that book is meant to motivate Josiah because, in fact, it says in the first few verses that his children are not going to follow God. And guess what? None of them did. And for a guy with a brave heart like that, isn't that neat that God would send one prophet? So the context is everything. What are those books doing there? And so what I want to do before I um, get into the particular verses that I'm going to be looking through, that we'll be looking through today, is just to talk a little bit more about what was happening in Thessalonica. Because in the particular verses I have, you have a lot of Paul running here and running there and worrying and all this kind of stuff. So what is it about Thessalonica that actually makes it special, that actually makes it something that we really need to learn from? And I'm going to apply this in a particular way because of my bent, and I'm going to say that what we're going to be looking at, especially in chapter 3, is the heart of a disciple-maker. A disciple and disciple maker. Because I think the broader category is maybe a little bit better fit for what Paul was going through and what was happening here. So, if, if you have your finger in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, you can keep it there, but I'd like you to turn over to chapter 17 in the book of Acts. So, I'm going to kind of just run through this in rapid fashion, but um, hopefully it'll, some of it will make a little bit of sense. So, what happens in chapter 17 is he winds up, Paul winds up, Paul, Silas, Timothy, these guys wind up in uh, Thessalonica. Paul has just gotten beaten to a pulp in this great adventure that he had in Philippi, which was really a cool adventure, except that Alas, he did get beaten up pretty bad. But he winds up in Thessalonica, and people in the synagogue, he always went to the synagogue, these people are coming to Christ, but there's something different about what is happening here. And you can see that actually in the letter, uh, where in the letter he says that you became imitators of me and of the Lord. This is in chapter 1, because of the way we suffered, because of the things that happened as um, the gospel was going out. He said, you became part of that. Now, that's kind of a rare group. He calls them imitators one more time. He said, you became imitators of the churches in Judea because when they trusted Christ, they suffered because of it. So apparently what was happening here in this church or in this synagogue, is there were some people who were latching on to the word of God, 
And as they were latching on to the word of God, they were facing such opposition that they were having to suffer for it almost immediately. Usually where Paul, wherever Paul went, he's the one who suffered. He's the one who got beat up. His life was the one threatened. In this church, it's actually happening to the people. And it's such a thing that, that it actually motivates Paul because he's seeing that as they're coming to Christ, they're being punished. And they're still coming to Christ. Imagine what it would be like. I mean, context is everything. Imagine what it would be like if you're sitting there, you're considering the gospel, and somebody leans over the pew. They wouldn't lean over the pew, but uh, your, your boss or someone says to you, you just need to know if you make that decision, you're fired. Or the government says to you, you need to understand that if that's the decision you make, if you confess him, as the Christ, you're going to lose your social security. We're just going to cut you off. Now, you think that's maybe a little extreme. That was exactly what happened in Jerusalem. You realize that in the book of Acts, very early, one of the crises they faced was these widows. Like, the distribution to the widows. Well, how did they get widows? Why did they have to distribute money to the widows? Very simply, the widows were already there, but when they came to faith, they professed Jesus Christ. And the minute they did that, the synagogue refused to pay for them anymore. So all of a sudden, the church wound up with a pile of people that they had to take responsibility for. The Apostle John says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but they kept silent and were secret disciples because they feared the Jews lest they should be kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue wasn't just social, it was also your support group, it was your finances, it was all of this. And in Jerusalem, they suffered when they professed the name of Christ. This is also the, the um, parents of the man who was born blind, who Jesus healed. It said, they answered the Pharisees like this for fear, because the Pharisees had already decided that if anyone should confess him as the Christ, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. So there was suffering going on. We say thrown out of the synagogue. We don't care. I mean, we're Westerners. Our context, if I don't like this church, I go down a block to the other church, or maybe even across the street. Back then, if you were thrown out of the synagogue, that meant a lot. Your employer may have been in the synagogue. So you lost your job. You lost your Social Security, your, your retirement. You lost a lot of things. You were shunned in your community. And so what's happening in Thessalonica is, as Paul is bringing them the message, some of these people are so amazed at the Word of God, they can't stop but... Trust Jesus Christ. The minute they do that, they are being punished for it. And you can imagine in a, in a heart like the Apostle Paul, this is speaking to him because he used to be one of these guys. He used to be one of those guys that tore husbands and wives out of their houses and put them in jail. And he would try to beat people or somehow coerce people to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And they wouldn't do it and it made him angry. So that when Jesus finally speaks to Paul, he says, it's really getting hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? 
you're not convincing anyone and you're not convincing yourself. So these people in Thessalonica are going through a lot of affliction. And the story, of course, and this is sort of the passage today, is that eventually it gets so bad, and you always knew when Paul was at the peak of his success anywhere, he was within inches of death, so they would send him away. And so he goes from there to Berea, and it says the Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So rather than half of them coming to faith and the other half going berserk, the way they did in Thessalonica, the other half was actually looking into the scriptures. However, the Jews from Thessalonica hear that Paul's in Berea and they come in there and they tear the place up. And so they got to send Paul away. And what better place to send Paul than to the big city? He winds up in Athens. But now... He's really worried. He's worried about this church and what is happening there. Because it seems like the bad guys are having their way. And you can imagine, you know, for somebody like Paul, seeing God working in an amazing way. He saw that even though he got beat up quite a bit. I mean, if you understand what happened in Philippi, whatever happened there happened so quickly he couldn't pull his get-out-of-jail-free card. Because we know Paul had one of those, right? I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me. It was so violent in Philippi, and the Romans were so good at what they did. When they grabbed him, they beat him. And, and you know, it's hard to reach for your wallet when your head's getting punched, I think. That hasn't quite happened to me, but I'm assuming that would be the case. And finally, after he and Silas, you know, they were able to snap out of it, Silas probably said, why didn't you pull the card? He goes, what card? Oh, yeah, that card. But God blessed them. The idea of putting their lives on the line like that received such blessing. And so they go to Thessalonica, and there's blessing there too, but it's different. And I I always think it's kind of neat that God did it like this, you know, because God got Paul ready. We say, how did he get him ready? He gave him a good beating. There's nothing that will get you ready like a good beating. Like if you're going into marriage, getting yelled at by your boss or by other people. No, I'm kidding, actually. I mean, there are some things that God purposefully lets us go through to get us ready for something else. And you can imagine Paul going from Philippi to Thessalonica, and it's like, whoa. He's seen everything like in, in these Marvel movies, like in slow motion, you know. And it's like, oh, he's being able to think about this. You know the story, uh, what is it, Big Lake, Texas, the Disney movie, The Rookie. This guy was a pitcher. He coached high school team. Well, he actually then went on and became a pro pitcher for the um, Florida team. Uh, But here's the thing. His team won a championship. And when they interviewed the, guy, the, the kids, they said, well, how is it that your coach helped you win the championship? And he just said, when our coach was pitching to us, he was pitching 94-mile-per-hour balls, 98-mile-per-hour balls. So when we got up for a game, it was like slow pitch. It's like these guys were throwing these slow balls. Who could help but hit them? And the thing is, God got Paul ready to go there and to witness something that had to have touched Paul's heart because he had been one of those guys, a religious terrorist who wanted to hurt anyone who believed in Jesus. So that is sort of the background of where we come into chapter 3 today. 
and uh, Paul feeling all of these, these feelings, this, this worry about them. So I'm basically going to go over three different things that I think are alive and well in this passage, and you can be the judge. The first is going to be your faith. The second is going to be our glory. And the third is going to be his coming, because I think all of these things, uh, not only in this passage, but in everything that we've read up to this point, uh, loom large. Now, Paul was a disciple maker. In fact, let me put it to you this way. And this has to do with Paul's interest in faith. Almost everything that Jesus says about discipleship is amazingly visible in the life of Paul. Jesus says, uh, you cannot be my disciple unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And then in 1 Corinthians, you read Paul saying, brethren, I protest by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, I die every day. Well, you can't fool me. He's referring to what Jesus is saying. Bearing your cross meant you were going to your death. Paul died every day. You think of humility in following, where Jesus says the first must be last and the last must be first. What do you get from the Apostle Paul? To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're ill-clad and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. You don't find anybody living what Jesus is saying any deeper than the Apostle Paul. And then, in terms of giving up everything, Jesus says, whoever then does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you all know Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse. So you have a guy here who is living a very close life with Jesus Christ as a disciple. And so making disciples, what it takes to be a disciple, is important to him. And what he's seeing here in these people is their faith. I don't know what your Bible looks like, but you probably have it in the same view. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaica, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Their faith. So they were not only giving the word of God, but there was something about their faith. And that's where context is important. What was it about their faith that inspired the Apostle Paul, but at the same time he was worried that they were going to lose because they were accepting such a beating and such humiliation and such suffering? I think that was important to Paul. And I will say this, you know, if we talk about somebody's faith, like you say, uh, a girl in California said that she believes in Jesus. Or not, yeah, whatever. California, I was going to say Colorado. A girl in Colorado says she believes in Jesus. Well, those of us who are devout would go. What if that's the girl in 1999 at Columbine High School who had the gun put to her head and said, do you believe in Jesus? And she says, yeah. Well, she's with the Lord now. That's a whole different thing. 
what you do in your faith makes a difference. And I think this made a difference for Paul. So in our text today, in verse 17, he talks about wanting to get back to them. Why is Paul wanting to get back to them? And now you get into chapter 3 and look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, they're, they're waiting for him in Athens, and Timothy finally gets back. He's brought us good news of your faith and love. He brought us good news of your faith. That was important to Paul. Look down at the end of verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And then at the end of verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. For Paul, and I miss verse 5 too, for this reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. And I miss verse 2, you know, because I'm just not being organized today. I tend to do everything backwards, you can ask Laura. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. How important is your faith? And what does your faith look like? What would be important for somebody like Paul? And what should be important for us? In Paul, it was really important because they were accepting Jesus Christ under persecution. Who has the guts to do that? And I'll just say, you are probably like me. I would be an untested element in that I don't know what would happen. I would like to think I would shine. I might not. I would hope that my faith would be strong enough to endure persecution. But for Paul, this was really important. Because you can't read the Gospels without seeing that faith has to be able to endure persecution. And not only that, the word was going out from them. See, that's what's so disgusting about people of faith that they don't like in China and don't like in other places. Because it isn't just that they have faith. If they just had faith, they would be harmless. But they're sharing it. They're not only being beaten up, but they're sharing it. And see, that's one of the things that they don't like in China. Is the fact that they're not just believers, but even under threat of death or under threat of persecution, they keep sharing their faith. And I think, and you might agree with me, that is biblical faith. It's willing to take a beating and at the same time, out of joy for Jesus Christ because of what he's done, because of the reality of the word of God, you've got to take it out and you have to share it. And so I think as an application point, I would just say, think about your faith. I know that, you know, like when I'm doing discipleship groups and everything, I'm giving people a challenge and, and it's just like baby steps. You know, are they willing to try to read the Bible every day? It's something, right? And if they don't want to do it, I mean, you know, it's okay with God. If they don't do it, it's okay with me. I'm not, you know, I have no real best, except as a maker of disciples. That makes a difference. And I push myself to make sure that 
This is like what Paul said. I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Why should, they, why should anybody listen to what I say or you say or anybody if we ourselves are not doing it? Go preach the gospel. Go out and tell your neighbor, you're not doing it. Well, guess what? It just so happens that along leadership literature lines, they just say nobody's going to do it if you're not doing it. A disciple is no better than his teacher. So if the teacher's got a log in his eye, so will the disciple. And that's how we would want to be. And so the thing is, I, I would just challenge you, and I'm not going to be specific about it, but what does your faith look like? What could you bring before God and just cry out to him about it and say, hey, look, I, I, need, to, I need to see how roadworthy this thing is, if I'm able to do anything with it. Give me a task. Give me a challenge. I don't want this stupid one-year Bible thing. That's fine. I mean, you know. But the point is, are you willing to try something? Can you imagine having, like, a Lamborghini, and all you do is drive it on Austin Parkway? And you do the speed limit. 35 miles per hour. Who invented that? That's awful. I used to have a gremlin, not the mythical creature, but it's sort of a mythical car. I used to take that thing because I was in love with this girl in Eagle River. And I used to take that thing from Omaha, Nebraska up to Eagle River, Wisconsin. 13 solid hours of driving. Get on I-80, coasting through driving through like a madman in Iowa, snow, so that you could hardly see out the window. I don't know if you know the trick this, is you just, you get in the left lane and you look at that solid line, you just hope nobody gets in front of you. And you're driving 75 miles per hour. Anyway, so I decided one day, I really like my gremlin, just to push it. See what that baby could do. I am not making this up. I couldn't get over 90 I don't think I could have gotten over 90 going downhill with that thing. So in Germany, they've got this thing called the Nürburgring, Ring. And what it is is a racetrack up in the Eiffel Mountain uh, Hilly kind of area. And anybody for like, you know, I don't know, 25 bucks, you can take your own car out there. Guys with BMWs and Audis and whatever, they go out there. The only thing about that is that it's hilly and it's curbed, kind of like Grand Prix sort of thing. And so the other place to see what you can do is the Autobahn. Because, as you know, there are some places in Germany where the Autobahn has no speed limit. I appreciate this commercial, but I saw a um, Mustang commercial one time where these German guys are unloading for an American his Mustang off a ship into Germany. And one of the German guys says, what, we don't have sports cars here? And the American says, no, you don't have speed limits here. And then you see the Mustang taken off. It's like, yes. Ask God for something to take your faith on the road. Do something courageous, whether it's with a neighbor or it's helping somebody out. But but it's important because the kind of living faith that you're seeing here, that Paul was so worried about, this is why Paul is so anxious and everything is, Did it get ruined? Did it get ruined? There's a lot of things that can ruin faith, and I'm going to stop with this part right here. Because the thing is, when you read the letters in Revelation, Jesus' last words to the church, you see this in more than a couple churches. 
what you had at the beginning was lost. So before it dies, strengthen it. The next thing that I think is important for Paul, and it's important in discipleship, and this is going to seem weird a little bit, is where he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, For what is our hope or joy or crown or blessing before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's a hard one to wrap your head around. But it was important for Paul. So, Paul's an apostle. What was Paul's job? It wasn't to be known as a great preacher or anything like that. It was to bear fruit for Jesus Christ. In Corinth, he says to the Corinthians, he says, I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He says, are not you my joy and my crown? He says, aren't you the seal or the symbol of my apostleship? What? In other words, how do we know that I'm an apostle? Because Jesus Christ bears fruit through me. And he says in Romans, I won't boast of anything except what Christ has done through me. So, if you're a bricklayer, and you haven't laid a brick in a decade or two, you remember back what it was like to lay bricks, though, right? That was cool. But you haven't laid a brick in, like, a decade. What do you have to show for what you are? Or what if you're an artist, and you really haven't done anything? Or where's Holly? You're a great pianist in Yoon. You haven't played anything in ten years. But, hey... I mean, that that would kind of leave you empty, right? Well, the point being is that what Paul says is our glory is what God does through us. And it means something to us. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he says, "Um, How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes through the only God? What Jesus is saying is, The glory you ought to be seeking is how God takes what you do and uses it. That's not somehow heady or egotistical. Paul was saying what we do is investing in people. And we're investing in you guys. And it's killing us to think that this might be in vain. And that's the whole reason Paul goes nuclear with the uh, church in in, uh, Galatia. Have you so quickly been led astray? Was our work totally in vain? It's not that he cares about getting points with God, but he cares about God's glory. And this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And somehow there is a healthy regard for how can I, what what really is my heritage or my legacy is it not what jesus christ has done through me and then the question is what has jesus christ done through me and i think what paul is seeing here is the uh, feeling is the sense of something may have gotten lost because how long can these people bear up so when timothy comes back and he says these people are still going strong they're still winning other people at christ they're still braving losing their jobs and all of this kind of stuff i mean I think it just caused Paul 
to give glory to God. Thank you, God, that they're holding on the way they are. So my thought is, in terms of an application for us, is can we ask God for something like that? You know, I've got, I've got a couple guys in my neighborhood that go to uh, an evangelistic Bible study. I go to that evangelistic Bible study and I sit with them and I keep my mouth shut the entire time because it isn't for me to uh, ventilate my tonsils and let them know how smart I am and all this kind of stuff. But I really want to see them come to Christ. I guess this is what I would say with Paul too, is that when he put himself out there and he really trusted God for stuff like this, God really listened to him. Got him beaten up in Philippi. But wow, what a neat beating. I mean, to lead the jailer to Christ? Are are we willing in our faith to put ourselves out there and say, God, glorify your name. And even if it looks like a disaster, I'm going to hang with you and you'll glorify your name. And you know, the thing is, when we stand at the end of our lives, we're not just thinking about fellowship dinners and things like that. We're thinking about people who really went on beyond us uh, for the glory and praise of God. I think that's valuable. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. And then the last thing is sort of a gimme in a way. Because it says so much about the coming of Jesus. You know, John has referred to this guy, Stephen Langford, in the 1200s. The story I heard was he was he decided to uh, do the verse and chapter things, and he was on his horse. And you can imagine a guy making mistakes on his horse, right? You know, as your hand slip or whatever. I don't think he was officially on his horse all the time. All the, the only thing I do know is this. When he came to First and Second Thessalonians, he had it easy. Because basically he ended every chapter with the coming of Christ. So, I mean, maybe that was, that was in his head to do, and the Spirit led him. But it's important. And here's where I think context is everything. When the Lord started opening the door to understanding, real understanding of his return in the millennial kingdom, in the 1800s, Europe, just coming out of the Napoleonic Wars, it was a time of tragedy. It was a time of weakness. It was a time of despair in Europe. In fact, there, there are books written about what happened in Germany in 1948. The exodus, the brain drain that occurred of people leaving uh, Germany and coming to the United States because it was so hopeless. Knowing that the Lord is coming back when you're hopeless is an amazing thing. And it's, I think it's wise. I think it's amazing that God, at that particular point in time, decided to start opening the door again for people to understand the millennial kingdom. It was the belief of the early believers until the Roman church took over. But in the 1800s, they needed that there. And then what do you have in the United States in the 1800s? The Civil War? And we needed it here. And it was being broadcast throughout Europe. D.L. Moody was over in Europe as an evangelist, and he got bit by the bug. And he brought it over. And and Moody's idea wasn't just to evangelize, but it was to train. He kept putting schools together. And the thing that was broadcast for a needy people, and it's, it's fully biblical, and it opened the Bible. Chafer says that before we were really teaching prophecy, the Bible was a half-closed book. But then you have the literal grammatical 
interpretation of the Bible, and the Bible became new for people, and they were eating it up, and they needed it. So let me ask you, what has happened since the 80s here? Who believes in the um, pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Everybody. Everybody believes in that. Who believes in the millennial kingdom? Everybody believes in that. Who believes Jesus is coming back? Everybody believes in that. There's no fire going on here. We don't really care. We got Amazon. Well, maybe these last two years have been kind of a, a change in the weather, right? But what I'm saying is for these people, this is why Paul did that. Because these people were beaten, being beaten up as they came to faith. And it's like, here is the truth. Here is reality. When Jesus taught his disciples to preach the gospel, you know what the gospel was? Go and tell them that the kingdom is coming and they need to repent. That's a pretty easy message to remember. God's coming! Holy moly, you're kidding. He's coming? It's kind of like Jonah. You know, he didn't even want to preach to the Ninevites. Hey, what are you sitting here for? Well, God's going to come and judge you. He's going to what? He's going to judge us! Oh, put sackcloth on the cows! It means something! Because they were dying of the Black Plague. Oh, they had their version of COVID back then, right? But see, the thing is, even if we live in a good time society in the West, it should mean a whole lot to us. Our investing needs to be in people. I remember thinking, because Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when that's going to be and, and whatever, but he is coming back. And when I first came to faith, I was taught to believe that could happen any day. And it was motivational. And it got me going. And it made a difference in whether I shared the gospel or didn't share the gospel with people. And what I'm saying is that, folks, if it's this important in the Word of God, it needs to be important to us too. He could come at any day. And people need to be warned. People need to know that they don't have forever and that there is a king who rules over the kings of earth. And his law, his way, is the way they need to obey. And if they don't, they're in trouble. So, I think we can pull this off. I think the believers in Thessalonica were something maybe Paul needed in his life. Who knows? But they were something that was shocking. They were, it was something that I think uh, created a desire and, and energy in Paul to see this happening. I think we can see things like this happening too. When Jesus says, lift your eyes and see that the harvest is already white, I believe that means here too. It's just a matter of us working together as a church and getting something like that done. And the thing I want to stop with is the story that I've got in the Simply Disciples, the book about the Chinese woman. I'm always humbled by that. To think that they go into this town where there had been a thriving underground church, the church has been decimated, here is one woman and three guys, and she's sitting there trying to get them into the Word of God. And the guy says to her, why are you doing it? She says, well, there's nobody else. Well, what do you mean nobody else? Well, I'm the oldest Christian, and they're younger than I am in the faith. And the guy says, how long have you been a believer? And she says, six months. 
And she is taking, not perfect, the Thessalonians weren't perfect, but she is taking that little bit that God gave her and she's doing an incredible amount with it. And that's something that any of us here can do. We just need to allow God to test our faith. We need to realize that our glory is not in what we accomplish, but in what God accomplishes through us. And we need to remember he's coming. So let's be ready and let's do our work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Um, All of this information is way above us spiritually. I know it's above me spiritually. I struggle every day just trying to grasp uh, some of the things that you show me. But as a group, we can do this, and that's what the church is for. And so I just pray that you would help us to unite together, to challenge each other, to love and good works, uh, keep our faith alive and fresh, to realize that what we will, the only thing that survives this planet are people. And those are the things that you glory in yourself, Lord Jesus. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. We want to be like you in that. And to remember and look every day for the fact that you are coming. And then our work comes to an end. And we just thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.